1: That's audible.com slash WonderyPod, or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military
2: vets in the U.S., and each week we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Now, you don't always find veterans in the limelight, but if you look at the country music family tree, Beyond the Boots... Many country artists have military in their roots. Legends like Willie Nelson, George Jones, don't and Chris Christofferson all served in the military. The great Johnny Cash was once Staff Sergeant J.R. Cash in the Air Force in the early 1950s. Johnny Cash spent much of his enlistment in Landsberg, Germany. And when the news of Joseph Stalin's death broke, it was Cash, who was one of the Morris Code intercept officers, that first received the news. I hear the
0: train coming it's rolling around a bend, and I ain't seen the sunshine since I don't know when I'm stuck in Folsom Prince. And that brings
2: us to today's guest, Barry Williams, an Air Force veteran that's not a household name, but his son is, country music superstar Jason Aldean. We recently talked about the good old days and what it was like before "Dirt Road Anthem" was as big as the national anthem. Yeah,
3: the road, back, like
2: Barry, how are you, sir? I'm great this morning, Phil. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. You know what? When I was down at my reunion, oh gosh, a year or so ago, a couple of us Navy vets all got together, and uh, my friend Fabiola lives down in Miami. And she has a dear, sweet friend, Yami. And we got to talking one night about best concerts we'd seen. And, you know, Yami was talking about some country music concerts. She's talking about seeing Jason here, there, and everywhere. And it wasn't until about a year or so later, I saw on Facebook, there she is sitting in the bus with Jason. And it looked like family, you know, a bunch of kids running around. And it's at a concert venue. And I'm like, dang, that is Yami. And that is Jason. Jason. And then she writes in the copy. She's like, always fun hanging with my cousin. And I'm like, dang, girl, you buried the lead. Your cousin is <laughs> Jason Aldean. I had no idea. And then we got to talking about uh, military vets in the family and everything. And she's like, oh, you have to talk to my Uncle Barry. She's like, he's got stories for days. And I was like, wait a minute, your uncle, you mean Jason's dad was in the Air Force? And that's what brings us to our conversation today. So with that, Barry, let's talk about where it all started.
4: I was stationed in Florida uh, I went in the Air Force in 1971 and I did uh I stayed in for 23 years so I was stationed pretty much all over the place uh you know during that time but uh where Yami come, you you had mentioned Yami earlier where she comes in I met her aunt there and uh you know we uh, we've been married 40 years this this coming year so uh that's the connection there so glad to have her and Jason actually, he spent a lot of time, uh, I was married previously to his mother and, and, uh, so he would spend summers and holidays down in, in Miami or Homestead where I was stationed. So he kind of got, uh, Cubanized down there, grew up in the Cuban part time in a Cuban family. And, and, you know, uh, if you know anything about the Cubans, they're a big social, just a family culture. And, uh, so he was lucky to, to be part of that and, and still is a, He's a light-skinned Cuban of the bunch, you know, so uh, (laughs) that's uh, it's been a good experience for him. Uh, Yeah, he's been been in that family for 40 years, so they treat him just like they do all the other cousins, so it's Mm. been a great deal.
2: Uh, Like many of us, we get stationed somewhere in the military, we meet the love of our life. Tell me, uh, before you met the love of your life down there in Florida, what were you doing? What was your MOS? What kind of jobs did you have in the Air Force?
4: Well, I went in, uh, I had the same job the whole 23 years I was in. I was an aircraft weapons technician and we, uh, we were the guys that loaded the bombs and guns and missiles. And we worked on the, uh, you know, worked on the systems. We're the last guys the pilots would see at the end of the runway before they take off. And, you know, pretty much the first guys they'd see when they'd come back. So, uh, that's what I did the, the whole time. It was pretty fascinating job. I got to I've always been into guns and 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 that type thing. I'm a hunter. And uh so it was right down my alley.
2: Yeah, man. Hey, can I ask what were the early 70s like for your transition getting out? I know that that would have been a tumultuous time. Even in the 70s was it like that? Were you just did you feel real at home down there in southern Florida?
4: Yeah, actually I did. Florida is a, a very patriotic state anyway. You know, they have I think they have like six or seven Air Force bases there. So, I mean, it's a big, big part of their economy and culture there. So, uh, yeah, they uh, the people there are they love the military. They did then. They still do.
2: And I think for that matter, we've seen the change in the entire country. And that's something that I think is good, Uh, although we have our issues. And certainly this is a divisive era. It is nice to see the whole nation sort of wrap its arms around military. It shows a level of respect that didn't happen in the 70s. And God bless you all that served before I came. You know, that's something that needs to happen in our country to keep us together.
4: It wasn't always that way. Like I said, I went in in uh, 71. uh, Vietnam ended, I believe it was seventy five so I had you know i was i was i guess you could say fortunate enough I didn't have to go into combat uh area, but you know especially with the with the uh job I had uh, I expected to i didn't and God bless those guys that did and made the sacrifice and did that but uh well, you did have the protesters. You know, had the flower, flower children running around. And where that was most noticeable to me was I was stationed in Denver. And that was, you know, that's always been a real liberal, do whatever you want to type city. And especially back then. So there was a lot, you know, you would get these looks and we weren't to go off base in uniform. Yeah, it was kind of a, it was kind of a tough time. It was, uh, you know, uh, with our short haircuts back then if we went downtown to a club there was always somebody that wanted a some kind of confrontation and uh so we were encouraged to sort of stay on base and and not go downtown much and uh so which was a shame for that time
2: and again for the service members and for the veterans for us to be able to be proud of our service because it launched not only our careers but, uh, as we'll get to in a little bit, launched our kids careers, which, uh, most yeah. of America's singing along with today. Uh, tell me about your career real quick. What'd you do after the military?
4: When I first got out of the military, uh, I went to work at the space center and at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station. I was, uh, supervisor at the, on the GPS satellites and Delta II rocket program. And we put a constellation of, of satellites up that we still use today. I think some of the ones I put up over 20 years ago are still in operation. At the time, they didn't know if they would last a year or or 10 as it is. uh, Some of them have been up over 20 years, but we use them in military applications and, and every day. I mean, if you want to go from a point A to point B, that's who you punch in. So I did that. And, uh, when I retired from that in 95, I moved back to Georgia and kind of took over Jason's, uh, career at that point it was great timing because jason graduated high school in 95 and he had already been uh working you know he was when he was 15 he was playing clubs in georgia so i was able to get up and and i kind of took over his career for him uh as manager i started booking shows and and you know we bought a, a van and trailer and equipment and um, yeah, he was the oldest one in the band. He was 17. Everybody else was 17 or younger. So we hit the road, you know, and, and just uh making big money, you know, $500 a night to do four sets a night and pay. We had to pay five people out of that. So, you know, we could almost afford breakfast at Waffle House, you know, at the end of the night. So, uh, so that's what I did. And after he moved to Nashville, I went back to work for a government contractor and did that for uh, probably four or five years. And, and it, it just, it didn't have, I, I love the music business always have and, and came back in the music business where we almost starved again. Uh, I managed other acts and, uh, it, it was a fun time and I enjoyed it. And, uh, but now I'm, I'm retired
2: and, and enjoying grandkids. So that's what I do. It still sounds to me like you are an important part of the music business because as I saw him on the CMAs not a couple of weeks ago, I could hear his kids squirreling around in your background there. Oh, so.
4: they all the time. The little one, she's three, and she told him she's moving in with us and going to stay with us for a thousand sleeps. And I, I think that equates to about three years. He said he's not paying child support, so I, I guess I'm going to put the bill for her too. She's so. <laughs> country.
2: Let's talk a little bit about families now. Um, raising kids, you know, you said you're working with Jason as a teenager there when, you know, country music fame wasn't even a thought. I mean, it was just trying to play a couple gigs, make a couple bucks, roll around with dad and go see the country. Um, when did you know that the musical chops were there and this would be a worthy pursuit to say, you know what? I'm going to let my kid just out of high school keep playing some honky tonks.
4: Well, I think it was even before that he was playing gigs, you know, at 14, he was, he was playing the clubs around Macon where, you know, he grew up and, and, uh, you know, he was making some noise and he he was front fronting the big band, the, you know, in the biggest honky tonk in Georgia at the time, he was like 15. So, uh, you know, we knew there was something there. It was just a matter of, you know, if he wanted to pursue it and keep, you know, keep doing it. And, uh, it turns out he did. So.
2: Was there ever a fear there as a, you know, as a parent that I'm getting him involved in an environment where, you know, let's face it, you and I both spent some time in a honky tonk in a country bar, you know, fights break out, a lot of people getting drunk. Was there ever a fear that that environment would derail any, you know, positive impact he could make?
4: Yeah. You know, you always worry about your kids, what they're going to do and and try to keep them away from those elements. But like you said, you know, we, you and I both, and, and, military towns as soon as you step off the base it's a row of honky-tonks so we've seen it but yeah i I mean i was i think i was fortunate and i felt better about that i was there to kind of watch him i I mean even at i think he came to, to nashville when he was 20 i think he was 20 years old but prior to that you know he wasn't legal to drink but all the guys in the band were young they were and they'd sneak off and grab a beer from the bar Tinder or whoever, you know, which we all did that. That that wasn't a problem, but you know, you just kind of want to, I just felt better being there and kind of guiding him away from that stuff. And we, we had talks about it too, that, you know, if you want this to work, if you really want this, don't screw it up. There's things, you know, drugs and all that, that will screw it up and, and women, (laughs) you know, early (laughs) they can sway you, especially a young guy. And you know, so you kind of, he had the girlfriends and all this, but. He was, he was pretty focused on what he wanted to do. And, and there's some stories and, uh, one real quick, I'll tell you, I I tried to get him locked up one time, but it's not as bad as it sounds. But when, when they first started out, it it was Jason Aldean and the young guns. And, uh, anyway, a club outside of Macon had called the little town. He he wanted them to play because I mean, they were, they were making some noise and. I said, yeah, man, we'll do it. So we booked the show for the weekend. Well, on that uh Thursday before we were to start on Friday, the club owner called, said, look, the, the cops came and said, you know, those guys are underage. They can't come in here and play. And, you know, it's uh they just won't let us do it. So we'll have to cancel. I said, what? He said, yeah, they said they're going to lock everybody up if we do that. So I'm thinking, well, you know, any publicity is good publicity, you know. <laughs> so I called my friend at the at the local T V station and the people at the radio station that we were familiar with already. I said, Look, this is what's happening. I'm gonna you know, we're gonna do this and they're probably gonna lock us all up and make sure you're there to you know, we got we got five teenagers just trying to do good and make a living and do what they love to do and, and let's uh but anyway, Jason's mother got wind of it and kinda nixed that, so It didn't, it didn't get to work
2: (laughs) they released the record anyway. So, oh man, that'd be one for the record books for sure. And it's also (laughs) funny too, considering Stevie wonder was like 16 or something like that when he got his start, I don't think there was too many classic rockers that, that were much beyond their teen years when they started, you know, Aerosmith Zeppelin, all them. I mean, rock and roll music country, you know, you don't wait until you're 21 to discover you're damn good at it.
4: No, no, no. Well, You know, I think part of that is, you know, he grew up right in the, right in the heart of the Bible belt. So, and there's nothing wrong with that. I'm a religious guy myself, but sometimes we can take it a little far and, uh, didn't want to corrupt the, the teenagers, you know, but it was actually, they failed to see that, you know, it was structured. I was there, you know, it was, it was just get on stage, get off. It's not like they were going to be slamming shots at the bar, you know, so.
2: Very cool. Hey, looking back even to the younger years, was there something in the very early years as like a middle schooler or elementary schooler, could you see a musical quality in him? Or was he strumming guitars? Because I'll tell you what, one thing Yami told me was that she remembers when they were little, little, he played with the Barbies. I don't know if I can speak to that on record, but like,
4: oh, I don't know if I'd speak to that. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, he was just a, a kid that, uh, Yeah, he was big in sports and, and, and baseball and, and was his big deal. So even later, I mean, he had, uh, high school. He had, you know, he was a star first baseman at his high school. He, uh, he had some college scholarship offers, you know, partial offers and, but he, uh, and we talked about it. I said, you know, which do you really like to do? You know, what do you really want to do? Probably not going to be able to do both. And and I think he would have done well in baseball. I don't know if he'd have been a major leaguer or what, but. You know, so he he liked the music. He, he loved what he was doing. So that's the route he went. But he's pretty well-rounded. The Barbie thing, I don't know about. <laughs> but uh, maybe, maybe full-grown Barbies, I think he was all about that, you know, the live one. So.
2: <laughs> oh, that's the truth. Let's talk a little bit about when, uh, you know, the teens turn into the 20s there. Do you remember like an aha moment when a guy and a cigar and a contract came over to a table or in a smoky room or, or what did that first step to success look like? And when did you know it?
4: Well, we had been building up his fan base and this was, you got to understand this was before, you know, TikTok and Facebook and all this stuff. We were actually, I mean, if I, we were playing up, up and down the, the East coast, down into Florida, the Carolinas, uh, Alabama, all over, you know, we, as far as, uh, uh, we were up in Indiana, you know, Illinois. So, uh, but what, what I noticed, I mean, I would have to call, you know, if I ran into you, I'd say, Hey, Phil, do you have a club in your area? Cause I couldn't get on internet and find it. Oh, hmm. yeah. We've, uh, you know, blue boots or whatever. So I'd get a number. I'd call them. And, and back then every place you call was long distance. I mean, I lived in a small town outside of Macon. If I called the next town, it was long distance. So it was expensive. And this is all I was doing. And as you know, military retirement is not, I mean, you're not going to get rich off of that. So uh what I did, I would buy these $2 or uh, uh, two cent a minute phone calls, uh phone cards, and I'd make calls with that. And I'd call, you know, I had stacks of them and I'd call these people. And most of the time they, you know, they weren't in the clubs. It, it was a, it was a process getting booked in these places. But what I started noticing was, was the, uh, the crowds just got kept getting bigger and the same people would show up, you know, at the next town and crowds would be bigger there. And, and it was just word of mouth. I mean, and it started growing. And then we played a club in, uh well, this club owner in Atlanta where Travis Tritt had came out of that club and Mark Wills and Confederate railroad, all these guys had came out and, and become stars and got record deals and all this. So, he he called me, he said, hey, you know, I want Jason, I need Jason to come up and play. I have some uh, record executives coming in from Nashville. You know, they're going to come in and, and they're looking for, you know, looking for acts. So <clears throat> I said, okay. He said, we're going to have five acts there. I said, okay. Well, it was kind of a, uh it was a good thing for his club because he knew we had a following that would come in. And, and plus they charged us a hundred bucks to come in to play. So I'm like, I never paid anybody to come play before, but we'll, you know, for the opportunity we did and went in, well, we were the last act to go on. So by that time, he'd been giving these Nashville people free drinks and all this. So they were pretty much much soused. And uh, so by the time we went on, Jason went on, you know, they were drunk, they were rowdy and not paying attention to what was going on. So nothing happened. So they called us about six months later and said, hey, we're going to do this again. We'd like Jason to come in. I, well, you know what? It didn't turn out so good the last time. Let's do it this way. We don't pay you. We go on either first or second. That's the only way we'll do it. And uh he, so he agreed to it. So, again, we b- brought a crowd in, which was good for him. But we went on second. And a guy after the show, this guy walks up. He was 28 years old. Yeah, I'm uh, Michael Knox. I'm... uh I'm a vice president at Warner Chapel publishing. And, you know, we were, I mean, I knew what a publishing company was, but we didn't know a whole lot about it. We knew it wasn't a record label. So we talked to him and he said, well, you know, I like him. I like what he's doing. Uh, he needs to move to Nashville. I'm like, he doesn't have money to move. You know, we're barely making it here. You know, he doesn't have money to move to Nashville. He said, well, we'll pay him $1,200 a month to come to town and write music and by then my bank account was pretty much depleted you know we'd been doing this three years and uh i said that sounds like a plan to me i can go back to work then." and so so we did he he signed a deal with michael and he brought him up to nashville to write songs he was 20 years old and uh you know he wrote and and nothing happened he got a record deal that uh capital records signed him he had been there about Two or three months, they never even cut a song on him. And, uh, they closed a bunch of their, what they call baby late labels down and they brought in Garth Brooks and, uh, Trace Atkins and all these people, you know, from other labels. So the guy told Jason, said, man, we don't know what to do with you. He said, you're kind of different anyway. You got a cowboy hat and earrings and you know, got these songs and we don't, you know, we don't know. He said, we don't know what to do with you. So we're going to have to cut you loose. And Jason called me. His fear was that they had paid him $50,000 as a signing bonus that he had to pay that back. I said, well, just tell them, let you go and, uh, you'll pay them when you can. But they were gracious enough. They let him, they terminated his contract, didn't take his money back. And, uh, you know, so he was uh, labeled without a label again. Uh, he was 28 years old. He'd been here eight years probably when he finally had a song out on the radio and, uh, they were, uh, he signed with a small label nobody had ever heard of uh he was yeah, they had nobody over there, and they put a song out on him and worked it real hard and and it got in the top ten and it just after that his career just just went i mean it's it's crazy twenty eight years old then, so it's not an overnight success
2: yeah it always seems to look overnight to the consumer we're like hey did you hear this new artist and nobody yeah. realizes that artist has been slinging it in the trenches for oh, so long making next to nothing um, well
4: it's yeah. like stapleton has been yeah, i mean he's he's huge now but he'd been kicking around town for 12 years or longer you know 15 probably just trying to he, he was a songwriter. nobody knew him except the the singers and songwriters and now you know he's he's an overnight success after 15 years you know
2: (laughs) yeah in fact i heard he was in nashville so long undiscovered that when he got to nashville he didn't even have a beard so (laughs) that'll show you how long it took for him to get it that's good all right let's talk a little bit about managing success uh first of all i don't know give me one moment you're super proud of as a dad uh again air force veteran dad now got this son with this skill and you've, you know, kind of brought him along and helped guide him a little bit. Give me one moment that just kind of tickles you to look back on and say, Oh, I can't believe I'm standing here next to this person, or I can't believe I'm on the red carpet in this place. Or give me one of those. Well, you know, really everything. I, I, I'm i super proud of both my kids are patriotic
4: kids. They, they love this country and they do a lot for it. They, uh, they care enough about people to help and, and this country to help. But I guess as far as a, you know, one of the moments in the music business, uh, Jason invited me. It's probably been about, uh, probably seven or eight years ago. He was, he was voted the most influential. uh, He was voted the artist of the decade in country music. There'd only been five people before that had gotten that Alabama, you know, they're just, uh, Dolly Parton. I can't remember who it was, but he was, you know, to be in that in that category with these people. I mean, that was, you know, I was there to see that to me, that was huge. I mean, you know, the artist of the decade, that's, that's a big deal.
2: And like you'd said to be mentioned alongside names like Dolly and Alabama, um, all yeah. of those artists shaped how music would sound later. And you can hear the drop D chord in so many country songs now. And the first, you know, the first place I heard it was Jason's. So um, yeah, very cool, man. Very yeah, cool. He's-
4: He's a rock act in a cowboy hat. I mean, he's, uh, I don't know if you've seen his show, his live shows, but he's, uh, it's probably the best live show out there. And I'd put him up against rock acts because, you know, it's just, it's just 90 minutes to two hours of just raw energy out there. And, and, you know, he has the stage show and his band's been with him over 20 years, you know, close to 25 years now. Same guys. Uh, they, they record every album you hear. They're the players on the album, and nobody does that to him, but him. That's how good they are. They've been a big uh, contributor to the sound, and you know, over the year, over twenty-five years, they've developed who he is and who they are. They're like family. I mean, all those guys are family too, and it's been a good, good ride. And it's still, it's still not just chugging along. It's, it's high speed drill, you know. So it's doing good.
2: And in, in fact, to quote one of his songs, it, it's a night train for sure. It is, it is going <laughs> fast. It's awesome, man. <laughs> I'm awful glad that you must have kept around some Skinner or some Van Halen tapes or some something for him to get up on those influences. Do you remember listening to music while just driving around making Georgia with him? Yeah, we, uh,
4: you know, we, we always had music in the house. We had, uh, you know, I was a big, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of the seventies, you know, sixties and seventies music and, and early. You know the influences on him were like Alabama and and even Tracy Lawrence, so he was all over the place. But we're from, you know, Macon, Georgia, where he grew up. I mean, that's the home of the Almond Brothers, uh, Otis Redding, Little Richard. You know, all the guys. Uh, Capricorn Records was there, so all these guys used to come into town to record. And uh, you know, I remember when I was, you know, in high school, I'd go down to the park on Sundays listen to the almond brothers they were just a local band you know so it was a good mix a good place to grow up as a musician
2: that's awesome yeah. man so i guess when charlie daniels penned the song the devil went down to georgia he in fact went to macon then is that what you're saying that's he,
4: cool. he was <laughs> down in Macon. that's right i used to uh even when i was in high school i would the studio was right next to my high school so i had to walk to work i didn't have a car so i'd walk to kentucky fried chicken where i worked and uh and I'd pass by there and hear these guys, Charlie Daniels or Leonard Skinner, you know, Marshall Tucker, those guys would be out there outside smoking and joking, waiting to record or whatever. And and that was pretty cool. And and then, you know, for Jason to get to grow up to play with Greg Allman and, and all these guys, you know, uh Bob Seeker, he's you know, got to play with all these guys that I used to listen to. So that that's pretty cool.
2: That's awesome. Let's uh, land it here and say, you know, when looking at all the landmines and the career hazards in the music industry, uh, do you think some of the I don't know, just some of the discipline that you had as an Air Force veteran, you know, as a guy that just served first and then went on to career? Do you feel like that you were able to impart that to him? And that's why we haven't seen him so much in the tabloids. We haven't seen him, you know, fall out the club all drunk on camera and making all these mistakes.
4: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wasn't the guy that, that, you know, at breakfast made my kids stand at attention before they ate their grits. But you know, it's, uh, I, I did try to let them know that, you know, people are out there to knock you down and, and the better you can be and, and try to be a good person and, and stay out of trouble. And, and, you know, it, it'll make life a whole lot easier for you. But he's, uh, you know, he's, he's done well. I've never had to go down and bail him out of jail and, you know, any of that. He says, well, you just didn't catch me some of this stuff, which is not true, but he, uh, you know, he's been a good, he's a good son. He's a good person and, uh, you know, I'm super proud of him. My daughter as well, she's involved with, with a lot of good stuff. So, uh, I'm pretty blessed. I, I see these people that I grew up with and, and their kids are, uh, actually one of my friends, her daughter was actually living in a box behind. Home Depot and and you know drugs and all that and uh, you know I, I'm very blessed and fortunate that you know my kids both of them have great careers and, and uh, you know give back and and do the right things.
2: Mm. Raised right by an Air Force veteran no less, so uh, salute to your service, Mr. Barry Williams. And I will definitely think of you guys and uh, this unique veteran connection the next time I'm cranking up Dirt Road Anthem. one with you uncle barry Let,
4: let's do it yeah we'll jump on the bus you'll be on the bus next so uh just like i so uh, thanks so much for having me on i appreciate it phil and, and uh stay in touch
2: will do man have yourself a great thanksgiving welcome back to cbs Ion veterans i'm navy vet phil briggs Now, in this next segment, we're going to meet an Army veteran and distinguished graduate of the University of Maryland Global Campus. Mr. Vernon Hood Taylor may have been the class of 1981, but the work of this Army vet has paved the way for all veterans to easily transfer their military experiences to colleges and the trade industry. So with that, let's say hello to Mr. Vernon Taylor. Hi, hey, how are you doing, Phil? Good to have you. And, uh, you know, as we noted there in the lead, uh, your career is just fascinating. It is because of your work. We have the Sailor Marine American Council on Education Registry Transcript, or the SMART program, which allowed service members to basically transfer some of their training and education from the military to college degrees. Before we get into all that you've done there, well, let's start with some DD-214 cliff notes, man. I see that uh you're an alum with a Bachelor of Arts from back in 1981, but uh you're an Army veteran, and you served in an era radically different in ways from today, but yet dissimilar in some ways. So share with me a little bit about your service
0: background.
3: Yeah, basically, I joined the military in 1971, and uh I was uh I volunteered to go to anywhere they were sent me, and at that time... So Vietnam was winding down and they sent me to Germany, went to Germany. And in Germany, I, I fell in love with the culture. And when I uh, was getting ready to get out of the military, I um, decided I wanted to stay in Germany. But the only way you could stay in Germany was actually have some type of status forces agreement. And the only way that I could do that was actually work for an institution that was an American institution that I could get what they call an ID card. And that was guess what institution that was? <laughs> University of Maryland in Germany, no less. In, in Germany. And and frankly, the first contact that I had with University of Maryland was to take basic skills. In other words, I had I was raised in Swamp, where English was a second language. <laughs> and <laughs> and when I started trying to go to University of Maryland, they said you need to learn that language. I um, mean English. And then that's how I started uh actually, my first contact with University of Maryland. By Let me just
2: pump the brakes real quick there and say, why is it that you needed basic skills in order to oh. work in the academic industry?
3: I was raised uh, in a in a school primarily. It was an all-black school from first to 12th grade. Uh, matter of fact, that I was saying that every book that I used in high school was used by somebody else. In other words, it was the, the school down the road that was the white school that provided their use books for, if you will, the, the, the black high school. Uh, and although I did very well, it was probably about 78 people graduating from the high school. I was the uh, uh, salutatorian. However, I didn't realize how lack of quality some of the education was until I started trying to go to college. And that first indication that I needed additional Academic uh, capabilities when I I, I tried to enroll in the University of Maryland. And, and, and once again, the first course that they put me in was uh, basic skills. Uh, However, it was the stepping stone to what I am today, actually. It was, uh, it it was one of those mistakes that is, as, as when I joined the army, it was one of the best mistakes I ever made.
2: As it is for a lot of people in hindsight, they look at something they may or may not have wanted to do during the Vietnam era, especially, and uh, went on to achieve great things. It's also what a statement of America circa late 60s in that the divide between the white education and the black education, that's something I think we take for granted today. We don't realize that like there is a cultural divide or there was at one point in this country a, a, a significant divide between oh, the way you oh, could learn doubt. in the black South and the way you could learn, you know, in the major metros where white people lived.
3: And on the same token, though, uh, there was this capability within the black community. And I think that what came from that all black institution, especially because all my mentors and they, my teachers, my principal, everyone black, there was a tremendous capability of providing the confidence that I needed to succeed no matter where I went. So when I left Okefenokee Swamp, even though I didn't have the academics, I knew that I was going to be okay uh, uh, no matter what I did or what I was trying to accomplish. And frankly, today, when I think about, if you will, the creation of some of those products for uh, like their smart transcript, the U.S. Map, the military apprenticeship program, it came from what I call my desire of being okay with who I was when I was in Okefenokee Swamp.
2: I mean that's a real silver lining to it, and I'm so glad you pointed out because sometimes I think we focus on the problems and not on the paths to success. And that was certainly bolstered by your time in
3: the army. And, and actually, <clears throat> that it did something else as well is that what I found in the military, I found uh, Okefenokee Swamp. In the swamp, you were going to take care of your neighbors. That was that was there was no doubt that that was what you were supposed to do. When I joined the Army and I'm sitting beside this guy from Kentucky, we had no commonalities whatsoever. And I was told, regardless of how he looks, or what he talks like, I was responsible for his safety. He was responsible for my safety. That was what I found in the swamp. But here's even better getting to the University of Maryland part is once I started, actually, especially once I started working at the University of Maryland, the culture within the University of Maryland overseas were a completely different culture. And I think it had to do also with the fact that you had now Americans overseas. So you had to, in the essence, protect each other. So I found almost like this family when I started. No matter what I did wrong or right, someone was there to help guide me. Uh, And and frankly, I would say that it contributed to my success and my continuation of trying to continue to strive.
2: That is very true. Whether it's the family in the swamp in the South, whether it's the family in the army, or whether it's the family in college, uh, you get a good one. Like UMGC, you can uh, find that family and find that support. Let's talk about a couple of cliff notes about what you did afterwards. You ended up helping develop the SMART program or the Sailor Marine American Council on Education Registry transcript, which basically helps veterans, these service members now pursuing their college degrees, transfer their experiences and their schooling in the military to college, which before you came around really wasn't done broadly.
3: Actually, what happened is that after working for the University of Maryland for four years, I ended up getting the job because I I fell in love with the education scene. I also fell in love with uh individuals, talking to individuals while I was working for Maryland, telling other young service members how to go through the program and to have them to come back and talk to me about their success of what they've accomplished and even some of those that got out even before I left to write back to me and say what they were doing because of the, I would call the exposure that we traveled together on the educational path. So I after Maryland, and I worked for uh, Boston University doing the same thing, talking to service members and trying to provide guidance to them. And once again, it was so rewarding that I, I figured out right then that that is what I wanted to do. So I became an education officer in the Army, an education officer in the Air Force. And then eventually I became the head of Marine Corps Education Worldwide. And doing that time frame, that's how I came about with some of the things that I worked on, for example, as the smart transcript. So was there
2: pushback from either colleges or major industries when you tried to approach them and say, hey, listen, these young men and women are getting out. They've been trained in X, Y, and Z. Was it a tough challenge to get them to realize the true benefit of the skills that they got in the military?
3: It was a challenge in the beginning because uh, the traditional route to education was always that standard of the academic side of the house. And very seldom did they look at the experience. However, an academic institution that that started this years ago on the, what you call your experience of learning credit recommendation was like New York Regents at that time. It's a college now. And so we kept pushing the fact that that credit recommendation was of a value. And eventually, some of the top academic institutions serving the military start recognizing that. Once that happened, you know what happened is that those academic institutions now was providing what I would call career pathways for service members, which meant is that now I'm going to get 30 credits, basically recommended for the job that I've done for 10 to 15 years. And I don't have to do total of 60 credits for a two year degree. And I don't have to do a total credit for 120 credits for a four year degree. Once that happened and the institution started receiving these service members, all the other academic institutions said, if I want that in that population, I have to do the same thing.
2: Now in our last segment, we'll look at how Army veteran Vernon Hood-Taylor went from working with the University of Maryland Global Campus to paving a way for all vets wanting to pursue their education. Earlier, we heard how he helped develop the Smart Transcript Program that ensures that military training and experience will transfer as recognized college credits. But he didn't stop there. He also worked to ensure that military specialties also help vets get valuable and high-paying jobs in the skilled trade industries.
3: And one of the other examples I I used when I started on the apprenticeship side of the house and getting companies to recognize, I was invited to the AFL-CIO to give a presentation because we had a challenge getting service members' expertise recognized into certain jobs. And one of those jobs I use as an example was a truck driver at that time, and a truck driver driving in the war, dodging bombs, but they could not drive that truck on I-95. They were considered an apprentice, and they started them at a lesser, if you will, rate for pay as they would as if they didn't have any experience whatsoever. Well, actually, they came around and they started recognizing the Department of Labor got involved. And that's how, the, if you will, the uh, many of the organizations start to recognize the capabilities of service members' uh, expertise that they gain on active duty.
2: That's amazing that before you came around, they were just thinking, okay, you drove a truck in the military in a combat zone. That's great, son. Going to start here at the bottom. And you were able to help them get a couple rungs up the ladder.
0: Um, it, outstanding.
3: That, 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 that's a very good point. And it's, and it's that way with many of the other capabilities that are provided are, are, are the skills attained while they're on active duty that the, many of the companies still are not aware of, which is one of the things that I'm doing today. The challenge is how do you ensure more than uh, 200,000 average of service members getting out of every year? How do you ensure that they have jobs?
2: Yeah. And like, I think of trucking as just one of many examples of skills that veterans have when they get out. Um, other ones include healthcare and medical fields, especially after COVID, right? There was a, there was a mass exodus of nurses and stuff that just got burnt out. Here are these veterans standing with the qualifications and they don't have to start at the bottom necessarily. Uh, electronics, trades, HVAC. I've talked to dozens of HVAC companies and entrepreneurs that have gone on to have success there and heating and cooling doesn't sound like it's something unique to the military, but it sure is all that engineering, all those maintenance jobs. If you can do maintenance on a plane, you can do maintenance on a furnace, you know, on a central air pump.
3: That's correct. And you know, what's funny is as I'm traveling and I'm working and then organizations are calling me in and I'm consulting, one of the largest challenges they have is not so much sometimes the trade. It's actually the culture. It is actually having people that know how to get along with other people and working together. Typically, you're going to more than likely be on time. You're more than likely going to be able to work side by side. You're going to know pretty much what the goal is, and you're trying to try to help the organization reach those goals. And that is something that I'm stressing to organizations when we're talking about how and what do we need to do to assist service members getting into jobs.
2: And what I love how this conversation has gone so far is, you know, I began thinking interviewing you would be talking about, you know, what college majors to pursue and how to get into college and how to succeed in college. You're opening doors not just for education for veterans, but for access to trades and jobs and creating a talent pipeline for industries to hire vets. I think it's so, so cool. And you're still doing it today. Vernon Taylor Enterprises, you are still meeting with big industries to develop a talent pipeline for veterans. Talk to me about some success stories you're having now.
3: Vernon Taylor Enterprises is nothing more than a consulting company that says to organization, you can work together better than you can alone. What I do is I go in and I basically look at what challenges companies are having. Typically, our challenges in getting qualified employees are trained employees. And I work with the organizations that provide the training in those companies to meet their requirements. So one of the things I'm, I'm working on is called self-identification. You got to know who you are before you really can help somebody else. And if you're going to try to go into something you won't want to really enjoy and be good at, you have to know who you are.
2: What are some examples of industries or companies that you've helped change or you've helped bring veterans aboard?
3: Uh, right now, I'm working with an organization called Cyberbite Foundation. Cyber is a major challenge for the country. How do we now meet that challenge? And my effort is to bring what I would call a consortium of training, academic institutions, certifications, and other organizations that say that this is what is required. This is the training profile pathway in order to do that. And not only assisting in the training, also assisting in how do you reach people that potentially have the capability.
2: Right on. And I'm looking at you, Intel guys. I'm looking at you, Cyber guys. I'm looking at you, folks that have spent too much time in a skiff. Your skills, your MOS, your training in the military is a viable and necessary resource. That is in these businesses. So I'm so glad to see you bring that all to the table. I'd like you to maybe take a crack at Twitter. It sounds like they're having some problems this week. Maybe you could help develop a talent <laughs> pipeline uh, for that, you know, for Elon Musk to keep that ship afloat. So many people are leaving right now. And uh, it might be that, you know, they need some more veterans in the game.
3: Growing up in the swamps, I don't know how not to be straightforward. So getting me into Twitter, I may get in trouble. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Sounds to me like they could use a cup of honest truth, man. It, it, it really does from everything I'm reading. You know what? I also want to cite Ticketmaster out there. Uh, you know, if you're in it's technology. Amazing, <laughs> Ticketmaster, you sell... Two million tickets to Taylor Swift for the pre-sale. It sounds to me like they didn't understand the definition of pre-sale. It means don't sell all the tickets. You're going to sell a couple of the tickets early. I don't know whether veterans can fix that or not, but it sounds like both Twitter and Ticketmaster need our help.
3: No, no uh, I, I, what, what needs to be fixed on that side of the house is it's talking to someone that actually would pay $38,000 for a Taylor Swift ticket.
2: I'm here to tell you, man, my daughter's Christmas present looks like it's going to be a little too expensive this year. So I don't know what we're going to do. Uh, I do know that you are always paving the way and have always been helping veterans in education, whether it was your time in the military your time at umgc or now your time with vernon taylor enterprises and um i you know i can't thank you enough for that uh let's end with something that the veteran getting out right now considering going back to school or entering the trades we talked last week a little bit about communication share with me your thoughts on what a veteran needs to understand is vital in the civilian workplace
3: one of the things that i've uh especially on the social media side is that It's amazing how someone would tell someone something on social media, but would never say that same thing into someone's face. The military has a bigger advantage in what I would call keeping it real than the private sector. When you think about it, we've talked about all these capabilities that exist in that type of environment, the community environment. Most people that get out of military probably don't have a like of uh, communicating. The problem they have is uh, the like of adjusting to the new environment where they are not expected to communicate, that's the the challenge.
2: I mean, we can learn skills, we can learn books, we can learn trades, but the thing you need to carry forward from your military experience is knowing how to look someone in the eye, shake that hand, stand up and assert yourself. Gotcha. Pleasure talking to you, Army veteran, through and through. Mr. Vernon Taylor, thanks so much for being on CBS Ion Vets.
3: Thank you, sir.
0: Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey.
4: Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you